Chris in Tennessee, you're on the air. Go ahead. everybody and welcome to the Revere Radio Network, the worldwide home of free speech. My name is Chris. This show is called Nowhere to Run. You can visit Nowhere to Run's website at nowheretorun.podomatic.com. You can email me at chris at conspiracyclothes.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclothes.com. Okay, i got a really uh, good show for you today. I'm going to get right to it because there's a lot to do. Uh, and it's been something I've wanted to do for a while, which is uh, exposing the many mistakes of Michael Tessarian. If you know who I'm talking about, you may know what I'm talking about. But uh, this guy is a very prolific, uh, quote, teacher and Internet uh, you know, researcher and so on uh, on the Internet. Um, and it is amazing how... Many things he is saying that is just are just flat out provably on their face wrong, and it's like, I mean, I'm just going through like I'd going through one movie, you know, two hours of him talking. I mean, I couldn't write fast enough how much he was, uh, you know, saying that was just like on its face totally false and provably so, and you know, but it's it's real insidious. Like it seems, as far as I can gather, he's he will just grab anything that fits his uh, his his agenda and what he's trying to sell. And he'll grab anything that has ever been written, uh, regardless of its, you know, credibility or authenticity or whatever, and just use it. And if it's like really suspect, he'll just say it real fast and move on, offering, uh, you know, the evidence is like he says a lot, like do your homework or, you know, and if you do your homework, you know, you'll find out, you know, whatever. I mean, <laughs> and then he never gives any, or you know, sometimes he'll say, and if you check my website and whatever, you know, I mean, but that's it. I mean. Very rarely does he offer any kind of evidence for these really fantastic claims. Now, I understand that a lot of what he's saying is true. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in, in what happens a lot with these kind of things is that this is people giving us, um, you know, there's a lot of absolute total weirdness going on in the planet and, you know, and the history of the world and everything else. I mean, it's nothing like what we've been told. And, and the waking up of people to this fact is being harnessed by these people, um, and, and we're being redirected to the other side. I mean, it's like they know an awakening's coming. I'm speaking of the New World Order types, the people who are controlling us and our overlords, as it were. They know that awakening is coming, but they do have agents out there to direct their agents. Like, yes, I know all these things are weird, aren't they? Let me tell you about them. It's so weird, and they've been controlling you for a long time. And then they'll throw in this just absolute vicious uh, misdirecting and it's all centralized on the same thing if you really want to analyze Michael Tessarian and you really want to take him apart it comes down to apologetics for evil he is making an excuse uh, for the biblical devil and he doesn't really even try to hide that that much I know that you know for you, those of you just joining I'm not even going to try to go there yet I'm just going to go basically what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through not in any particular order I just have like Hundreds of things that he said that are just really wrong. We could go through it as a list and just 
and just show you where where uh, he's wrong. Some of them take a little time to explain. Some of them will take a lot a lot of time. But I just hope to show you by sheer volume of mistakes that there's a lot to be mistrusted with Michael Tessarian. I mean, he just drops lies every time he opens his mouth. Something totally false comes out. And, uh, you know, but it's it's intermixed with some really interesting truths that need to be discussed. Like the Nephilim and, and all the, the weirdness that surrounds that and how and how specifically it relates to us and what we're doing now and what happened in the past. You know, these fallen angels are trying to mingle themselves in our bloodline. And that's why people like Zachariah Sitchin, SitchinIsWrong.com, and uh, who and Michael Tessarian, which are basically believe the exact same thing for the most part. They differ a little bit on dates and some other things. But for the most part, Sitchin and Tessarian are, are right on the same page with this uh, very elaborate history of how... The God of the Bible is actually an evil alien race that was chased here, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll try to get into that a little bit. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is that um, the only the way that he can make Ansichin can make this elaborate story of genetic manipulation by aliens work is very very important to uh, this whole this whole thing, and uh, it can work because something like that happened. But they but again, as his role as this apologetics for 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 the devil honestly it's a it's a misdirection and if you kind of are are hip to that fact you can see some really interesting things about what he's trying to say and again i think this information is very uh very telling if you know if you see where it's going but there's a lot of material out there this guy's a fast talker and i think that um, many of the listeners of this show will will be able to, after I read his bio here in a second, will be able to read a little bit into this and understand that he may, uh, just by some uh, different uh, facts about his life, is probably being led uh, supernaturally in a lot of ways. And I can I will uh, say that I get the impression and and, and uh, that he is, and I've got some answers for that. I'm going to try to hold off on some of that talking uh, right up front because I know we probably have a lot of new listeners who um, you know, just hear about the Michael Tessarian thing. So I'm just going to go quickly into this. We've got way too much to cover. Uh, here's a quick bio of him. Described as a teacher as a teacher's teacher, Michael Tessarian is a divination scholar and side reel mythologist. Uh, let me stop here. Side reel mythologist is actually only mentioned like in reference to Michael Tessarian, so it should probably say Michael Tessarian is a divination scholar and the side real mythologist. Uh, he's an expert in stellar astrology. He is the creator of an of the archetypal stellar terroscopic astrological system of hermetic divination and the founder of the online terroscopic mystery school. Michael is a descendant of a long of long time philosophers, free thinkers, aesthetics, and visionaries. His Himalayan-born mother was a well-loved, internationally recognized clairvoyant whose affiliates included uh, lots of names that I'll probably mispronounce, including Shirley MacLaine, uh, Edgar Mitchell, and a host of other celebrities and ac- academics. She attended, uh, I'm not going to hit that, uh, a premier college in India and was later honored as the very first clairvoyant to be a regular on Irish television, the CEO of uh, Britain's independent broadcasting described her readings as devastatingly accurate. Michael is also the grandson of Tara Singh, a renowned ph- philosopher, author, and teacher of the Theosophic Tome, A Course in Miracles. He was the intimate friend of J. Murati, a world teacher. Uh, some other names I'm not going to hit. Eleanor Roosevelt, President Nehru. Uh, blah 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 blah. Michael was born and raised in Ireland and grew up learning metaphysics in uh, uh, 
Karishna Murati and Reverend Paul Solomon and Peter Ballon. Growing up surrounded by, by leading freethinkers and mystery school creators, he was under the pressure to find his own authentic voice rather than becoming dependent on the systems and influences of others. He has honored uh, his pedigree in dedicating his life to the deepest research concerning the Sumerian metaphysical sciences. And unlike so many, he believes in honoring the work and names of his mentors, blah, 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 blah. blah. Intuitive since birth, he was introduced to the tarot at age 11 through Reverend Paul Solomon, a premier mystery school, the Fellowship of Inner Light Movement, blah, 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 blah. He has been affiliated with Paul Solomon's Foundation of Virginia and Rosicrucian Order. Uh, he taught the Indigo Children at the New Age Academy at Berkeley. He's a frequent guest of blah, 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 blah. He is a um, passionately acclaimed veteran of the field, such as Jordan Maxwell, who he is kind of like the um, a protege of in a way. Jordan Maxwell uh, is very interesting, and I put in the same category as Michael Tessari. And I just got a uh, side note off a website. I'm going to put, uh, I just found it ridiculously funny. On Jordan Maxwell's uh, website, there's like a Jordan Maxwell's friends, and, you know, it's got pictures of him with, like, all these people. And it is like the the rogues list of, of, of COINTELPRO government uh, plants. You know, I mean, it is just a laundry list of everybody that is in the conspiracy world that is a plant, obviously. I mean, you just go through that list and like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, him? Yeah, he, he's definitely a plant. I mean, Jordan, I'll link that to my site, nowhere to run com. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Enough of that. And I also wanted to read this before we get going. This is a something I found on a forum where they were uh, noticing a lot of problems and inaccuracies in it in his statements. But uh, this guy lists about 20 things here of basically what Michael Tessarian's premises are. And so I just want to go through them real quick just because it gives an idea of what I'm talking about here without having to go into too much here. Um, one, God is the essence of all things. Good and evil are two sides of the same coin. Humans embody both good and evil in our DNA code. We are a hybrid race containing strands of human Nephilim alien DNA. The God of the Bible is in fact a nefarious race of extraterrestrials who have brought destruction down upon Earth. These same creatures have tampered with our DNA and are the hidden power behind the world governments, a.k.a. the New World Order. The first Adam was created to serve gods, toiling in the mines quote, the Garden of Eden, extracting minerals and providing for the Nephilim's every need, slaves. Um, Jehovah, in the Bible, is in fact Satan the adversary. Adam, the first genetically hybridized race created to be the slaves of the Nephilim, rebelled against God. This is alluded, this is alluded to in the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden. Uh, the serpent in the, in the garden is good. He wished to impart knowledge to Adam and Eve. The serpent, United States of America, is in fact a corporation owned by the Vatican. That's true. I mean, some of this stuff is true, which is kind of my point. I mean, that, you know, I mean, this is very insidious stuff, and he'll intermingle something like that with something that's uh, absolutely not true. But anyway, let's let's hear him say it in his own words, and what I'm going to do is play different clips from something he'll say, and then I'll retort to it. I think this, this uh, I'm going to just go out after first, is the... Uh, there's a two-hour video of his called The Destruction of Atlantis on Google Video. And uh, so I'm going to take that piece by piece, and I'll show you what we're talking about. Okay, in this uh, clip, Michael is trying to explain to us how to uh, how the this alien race came to Earth and initially, and Earth was different then and whatever, and he says that they go underground. What I'm concerned here is how he chooses to prove 
that they went underground. It, it's really it's really silly. I just wanted to show you. These beings actually did not go to Tiamat. They actually landed on our planet, which was mostly covered in forest at that time. And it was five different continents, not what we know today. And they went into the tunnels that people like Eric von der Eiken, you know, have discovered and amazed at how these tunnels could be cut. And they some say that they even went under the oceans. Like in Samuel here it says, And the king said to her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. In Bulwar Light. Okay, that is a classic example of Michael Tessarian taking something out of context. Uh, now again, he's trying to prove that an ancient alien race came here in, in the super, super prehistoric days and lived underground, and he uses this phrase to prove it. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. Let me just try to explain to you what this what this passage is saying in context and why this is it, this works for somebody who has never read the Bible and is only just read what he has in his PowerPoint presentation on the screen there and then it's like oh that does kind of prove what he's saying I mean because that sounds like there's gods coming out of the earth that 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 makes sense to what he's saying it proves his point okay this little section here in First uh, Samuel 28 is when Saul who was the king of uh, of Israel. Um, who had earlier kicked all the people with familiar spirits and people that did divination and all these people out of the land. He kicked them all out as an as an edict. And uh, so, but then yet he wanted to go find one when he got in trouble and he wanted to find a a person as he says with familiar spirits to have them try to necromancy to raise the dead so he could talk to Samuel, the first king of of uh, Israel, I think, and. They wanted to talk to him about the approaching army. So he's actually going in disguise, going to try to find, with you know, being led by you know his entourage or whatever, trying to find a, a person with familiar spirits. And so that's where we're at right here. And he says, and I'll just kind of read around in context to show you how crazy this is to use as, as the example he does. Uh, and Saul disguised himself and put on another raiment, and he, and, and he went with two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by thy, thy the familiar spirit, and bring him up by thy familiar spirit, which, by the way, out of context is saying that because you have a demon, you're able to do this, um, and bring me and bring him up, which I'm going to do a show on later, that anybody that has these uh, powers is actually doing them through demonic uh, attachment, uh, and bring and bring me him up, who I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou sawest what Saul has done. He has cut off those who that have familiar spirits and have and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? So she's saying, You know that Saul made this illegal. What are you trying to do? Trap me so I'll, I'll uh, you know, do this and and you'll uh, and you, and you'll just trap me. And then said the woman, Oh, and, and Saul swear to her by the Lord saying as the Lord liveth there shall there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing and then said the woman whom shall I bring up to thee and he said bring me up Samuel and the woman saw Samuel and she cried with a loud voice uh, and 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 the woman spake unto Saul saying why hast thou deceived me for thou art Saul okay now first let me explain what's happening here she whether I don't know if she was a charlatan or whatever but she was not apparently expecting there to be any real manifestation of a ghost she's like yeah sure let's go in here let's do the seance we'll call up Saul oh uh, you know will you please come up and talk to us Samuel and then she jumps back it's like oh my goodness I've you know so she's uh she's seen something here and uh let's see and the woman uh and when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. 
And the woman spake unto Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. So apparently she saw under his disguise at this point, and is like, You're Saul. You know, you're the one that that you know made all these uh, uh, wizards and familiar spirit people have to leave. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid. Okay, so he's like, Be not afraid. Okay, yeah, I'm Saul. You caught me. Be not afraid. And then he asks, What sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw God descending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. Okay, see, at this point, uh, you know, what what's happening is, is Saul, recognized by her description of this person, he's an old man covered with a mantle, that it was Samuel, that it was actually Samuel that she brought up. That, that she brought up, and in no way is this talking about a prehistoric uh, alien race coming to live underground. I mean, if you take this now, let me take that back out of context and read you the line again. And the king said unto her, "Be not afraid, for what sawest thou?" And the woman said unto Saul, "I saw gods ascending out of the earth." I mean, if you have never read the Bible and you have no context to to say it, then you just saw it in a PowerPoint presentation where this guy's trying to blow your mind about an a- alien race. Then you'd be like, "Oh yeah, is this stuff's in the Bible too?" They're talking about like people living underground and everything in the Bible. I've totally seen it there. It's in the Bible. Trust me. And 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 it's it's that's just part and parcel to what's going on here. Um, and again, is other evidence for this particular claim is that. Um, you know that he mentions von Daniken, Eric von Daniken. I mean that even the people that are desperately trying to prove this won't use Eric von Daniken. I mean he's one of the more discredited, publicly discredited people out there. You know, I'll use a take a page from Michael Tessarian and say do your homework because uh, you know it doesn't take that long to figure that out. Uh, okay, moving on. Then we turn to the Bible again. We have a statement that says they come from the far country, from the end of heaven, to destroy the whole land. Who are these that fly in a cloud? as the doves to their windows. Okay, I'm going to get to some more factual uh, debunking here in a second, but this is classic because for a number of reasons. Okay, what he just said there is coming from two different verses in Isaiah. Now, what he said is they come from a far country, from the end of heaven, dot, 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 to destroy the whole land. That's one verse. And another verse is, who are these that fly in a cloud as doves to their windows? But he, if you read that all in, in one spot then it sounds like the same ones that are flying on the cloud uh, are the same ones that are going to destroy the whole land. Let me read what he just read again. They that come from a far country from the end of heaven to destroy the whole land. Who are these that fly in a cloud as the doves to their windows? And here's another problem with what he just said. On his PowerPoint presentation, both of these things that he's quoting are not the right verses. This is great. This first verse, they come from a far country from the end of heaven to destroy the whole land, which he says in this PowerPoint presentation, it comes from Isaiah 13.3. Not only does it come from Isaiah 13.5, but 13.5 says, they come from a far country from the end of heaven, and his, where in his presentation says dot, 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 it says, even the Lord and the weapon of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So very clearly, the part that he left out in that first verse is saying that it's the Lord that's destroying the whole land, you know, and, and not, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to say there is that he totally manipulated the, every part of these two little things. And OK, and so in the second part. Who are these that fly in a cloud as the doves to their windows? He says comes from Isaiah 9, 8. Actually comes from Isaiah 60, verse 8, which is a very big margin of error there. 
Um, but anyway, so he got that wicked wrong, too. And uh, let's see. So that does sound weird, so we should look into that. Who are these that fly in a cloud as the doves to their windows? Well, that sounds a little crazy. That sounds like maybe they were flying uh, spaceships. When you look at Isaiah 60, and this whole thing is talking about the end, the last day here and the resurrected church, and these those are the resurrected saints, and, and they're... they're the, you know, flying in the cloud as a dove to their windows. I mean, it's it's a. It, and if you look at the Hebrew term for cloud, and that there's a lot of different uh, poetic terms for cloud. And uh, I'll link also to the Hebrew dictionary of that particular verse of cloud used in that passage is not, not referring to any of the weird clouds at all. I mean, it, it, or the physical clouds. It's a poetic term. And uh, but but again, so he got both of those verses of the Bible wrong that he used to completely wrong one of them absolutely wrong one two verses uh and then he omitted the middle part of the first verse that would have obviously debunked what he just said and then he puts them together to make them mean what they say then that's really wrong so if you're at the very least if you're if you're thinking that michael cesarean is a, is a good person to look to for an interpretation of the bible or as i've heard jordan maxwell say before he reads the bible so you don't have to he's he's studied it all over and over and over so there's no need for you to study it because he's already made the interpretation for you and so don't worry about that if those are the kind of mistakes that he's making then you know you might have a little more more to look into than uh, just that so let's move on okay let me go into what his view of the adam and eve garden of eden thing is real quick basically we have the earlier uh, big race of these uh, super intelligent aliens that genetically modified one group and that group served them for a little bit but was basically too smart so they left and went to Lemuria and then the other group, the original group, bred another one but they dumbed them down uh, because they would be better slaves if they were dumbed down so they did that and then uh, they also made the women unable to breed. And those were uh, the ones, so basically the story of Adam and Eve is in effect um, uh, the first created race, the ones that were smart, uh, went to go save their cousins who were, um, you know, were dumbed down and they didn't have the knowledge of genetics. So this uh, enlightened first created race, I mean, anybody see any parallels there? The uh, first created um group came to share with us their cousins the second created group this knowledge that was held back from us by our big meanie creators who wouldn't let us do this and and so they they offered us this wonderful deal of how to the genetics the tree of life the dna and we took to it and the women took to the science and that's why when the women went to the maria they were made the the high priests and everything um but does anybody anybody see the the what's happening there i mean he's he's making the angels the fallen angels the one who offered us the knowledge which is nothing new in history i mean if you look through history they've always offered us their knowledge i mean they're 10 dimensional beings and and they offer us uh insight into our natural system as long as we just give them what they want you know which is usually ritual blood sacrifice and it's been that way all throughout history it seems like you know every, yeah we were figuring out how to build pyramids and everything else uh for them but you know we're imparted knowledge in these secret mystery schools and what do we get in return well you know we got the knowledge but we had to sacrifice uh to them i mean just look at the mayans or you know any of those and he's basically making it look making these angels look like the saviors of the world i mean and i mean this theme goes through all of his research but i got a lot to do here this 
doesn't stop here. There's a lot of real neat little factual things and just easy to prove them wrong. I just need to get going here. Anyway, this is all basically Gnostic um, philosophy. He, he's just a chameleon of anything anti-Christian, and this is part of his Gnostic uh, area. Now, as I said, in the Bible, you'll hear certain terms, and you'll hear this term naked, that Adam and Eve went into the garden naked. Well, what does that mean? That uh, God was wearing Levi jeans then, and uh, everybody had clothes? The word naked is another, you know, euphemism, a cryptic euphemism in the Bible that refers to a state of being in intellectual ignorance, nakedness, into the garden in a naked state, meaning that they had suppressed intelligence. Notice he offers no evidence or resources to that claim. But in, so, reduced intelligence of what, specifically? Remember how I just quoted, quoted those books where it says they cannot eat off the tree of life? Remember that? Well, the forbidden fruit... This term, the forbidden fruit of the tree of life, is another euphemism for the knowledge of human genetics. Because the tree of life symbol has always been the symbol for that. For what we call the caduceus of Hermes or the DNA spiral. In ancient times it was known as the caduceus of Hermes or before that the tree of life. Because that's exactly what it is. And they said it has its roots in the earth and its branches in heaven. So notice that that's what is evidence that the tree of life was in fact the DNA is the caduceus of Hermes, period. I mean, that's his evidence. And the caduceus of Hermes looks like, you know, the two intertwined serpents looks like the double helix of the DNA. I mean, that is very circumstantial evidence. But again, in this PowerPoint presentation, it's like, oh, that makes total sense. The tree of life sounds like the uh, DNA, you know, and, and, and of course that makes total sense. And... Uh, and, and it's and it also makes the the best argument for his for if you were the devil trying to explain how you were just trying to, to give them what they wanted knowledge you just wanted to come in and give them knowledge and then and then God got all mad at you but you you know I mean it's like whatever and then later that tree became known as the tree of good and evil you know and all the people who think they're into their cultism go oh, the tree of good and evil thinking that means something esoteric actually it doesn't. The tree, this term does not refer to anything esoteric. It refers only to the two contingents or races and residents on this planet, both custodians and utilizers of the knowledge of genetics. The good and the evil, for want of a better term. It's their tree, meaning their knowledge. Anybody else follow that? I didn't. And I, and I know that from reading of it, they're very distinctly two separate trees, and there's a lot of really cool and interesting stuff about it. But he just like... Oh, no, no, look, they're not the same thing. It's just later was said, I, I don't have any evidence, but, you know, do your homework. So naked and not being able to eat off the tree of life, not being able to eat off the fruit of the tree of life is a euphemism for the Adamic race not having the intellectual ability that their masters had, the high scientific technical knowledge of, of reproduction on that level and the science of biology and techn technology. And that's what these symbols all refer to. Do you know on the Kabbalistic tree of life, anybody familiar with this? There are 22 paths. 22? Anybody in the genetics know the number 22 and the chromosomes on the, on the DNA? I wonder what he wants us to know about the number 22 and the chromosomes on the DNA, because there's actually 23 pairs of chromosomes in the DNA, and that 22 has nothing to do with anything. And, you know, that's the whole of his evidence, people. I mean, when he's in the PowerPoint presentation, this will blow your mind. It's like, oh, my gosh, the tree of life is a good name for DNA, and this makes sense with this whole thing, and, and everything else, if the chromosomes were 22, just like the Kabbalah tree of life, it all makes sense. When it doesn't make sense at all, it makes no sense. And and and, and here, you know, the, this, this 22-chromosome, 23-chromosome problem is another thing, because he says the Kabbalistic tree of life... 
which you know is uh, you know had to at least be late first century after the temple was destroyed, 70 A.D. You know, I mean, so we're talking about something that a, a writing 4,000 years prior, and he's just connecting you know a very recent happening to it. it it's it doesn't make any sense, but. Um, you know, let's move on because there's a ton of stuff that I, you don't need. This there's there's a ton of stuff that he gets wrong. Let's just continue. Okay, I'm gonna play another thing. Again, I'm not gonna try to just keep it to his biblical wrongness because he's got a lot of just real wrongness everywhere. But I want to show you just a few more where he just he just totally blatant disregard for even quoting the Bible right. I mean, not even the right chapter, not even quoting the right thing. And the best part is that he doesn't even it doesn't even prove his point. He just like quotes it out of thin air to prove nothing. I mean, here, here's a classic example of that. Job 14, he shall flee from the iron weapon, and the bow shall strike him through. Okay, I just wanted to play that one right there. It's kind of out of context, but I just, it's, you know, as far as audio goes, you're not, you're not really seeing uh, what I'm seeing here in the PowerPoint presentation where he has the quote underneath it where it says, but there he says, Job 14, and he makes that quote, um, he shall flee from the iron weapon, and the bow shall strike him through. And go look through Job 14, see if you can find it. It's not there. It's in Job 20:24. 20, Again, that's not uh, that's not really the the part here. I love this. I'm going to play a little section for you. And what I want you to look for is what look what the claim he's trying to make, and then look what he chooses to prove his point. And notice that what he's choosing to prove his point doesn't even doesn't even get close to proving his point or, or even talking about his point or even you know helping his point all of that it, is, it does is it shows it, he picked out different parts in the bible where god is saying something about being vengeful towards something and those two instances he's been vengeful i'll, I'll get into in a second but notice what he's claiming and then notice what he uses to prove it and just use some discernment what what is does is what he just said does that prove what he just said because he seems to think that it does so here we go now these serpent masters suddenly find out that this is the third time that their plans have gone awry first they're kicked out of their own planet right they have to travel across space come to this useless planet they probably don't even like they create a race of servants to serve them who won't serve them they create a third race who will serve them and then they're lured away by the first race so they're really pissed now in fact, they really are pissed because it says, by Jack Barringer, in one of the most tragic ironies, the majority of humans continue to worship those gods who have abused them the most. Is that not true? Oh, yeah, so true. Well, let's think about that. He leads off with that one because that kind of makes sense to what he's saying. And the most tragic ironies is that we continue to worship the gods that, that abused us the most. Okay, that kind of makes sense to what he just said. That's why he led with it. But I don't know who Captain Jack Berenger is, and what was his book that he's quoting from? I looked, Google, tried to find anything on Jack Berenger. All I could find was like a guy named Cap, Captain Jack. You know, didn't seem to have anything to do with any of this. I, I don't know what he's got that from, but I can see why he led with it because the other stuff that he says. Again, now he's trying to prove here that they're real mad at us. So here's what he continues with proving that these ancient race of aliens was mad at us because they couldn't get good slaves. Ezekiel says, Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all of thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Neither shall mine eye spare thee, neither shall I have any pity. These comments about the wrath of Jehovah have a specific reference. But I wish you would tell us what that was because what he just said, talking about the wrath of Jehovah, 
talking about the people that had defiled his temple. You know, I don't even know how you could, in the context of what he just read, how you could even make that mean what you just tried to make it mean, that uh, the alien race was mad at us because they kept losing their slaves, okay? That doesn't support your idea, neither does the next one. Then shall ye know that I am the Lord. Do you know, somebody asked, I think it was Carl Jung, why Jehovah always talks about I, I, I all the time. He was overemphasizing his power, his wrath, that he'll get angry. Well, you only do that if there's an opposing side that you're trying to compete against, wouldn't it? So he says, I am the Lord. When, and you'll know this, he says, when their slain men shall be among their idols, round and about their altars, upon every high hill, in all the tops of the mountains, and under every green tree, and under every thick oak, the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols, so will I stretch out my hand upon them and make the land desolate, for they shall know that I am the Lord. Now you see now from what we're saying why something like this, the caption would be written? Because the alien masters now wanted the Adamic race to know who the real God was. And that it says here that they would, even, they would even slay the bodies amongst their idols. Idols meaning, you know, that the idols will have to watch these people die. What? I mean, let's play that one over, because that made absolutely no sense. Again, reading this thing, then shall then ye shall know that I am the Lord when their slain men shall be among the idols. And then this is talking about people going up on the high places, just like they did all throughout the Bible, and they would always talk about on the high places where they'd set up uh, temples to the false gods, and they'd burn incense to them and sacrifice their children and everything and God and certain kings would endorse it and certain kings wouldn't and they'd have to go up there and smash all the temples and everything so here's what this is saying in context and he's saying I'm going to destroy all these little altars you guys got and he's saying then you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain men shall be among their idols round about their altars upon every high hill and all the tops of the mountains and under every green tree and under every thick oak and the place where they did offer sweet savor to their idols so I will stretch out my hand upon them and make their, the land desolate and they shall know that I am the Lord okay and did you just hear what he said now you see now from what we're saying why something like this the caption would be written because the alien masters now wanted the Adamic race to know who the real God was. And that it says here that they would, even, they would even slay the bodies amongst their idols. Idols meaning, you know, that their idols will have to watch these people die. What? At, that is mind-numbingly stupid. I mean, that is in no way saying that. It is in no way could be taken that way. He... The reason I think that obviously he comes from a long line of occultists who, you know, this this line is talking against people that, you know, do occults and exactly what he does. He's under those oak trees offering sweet savor to the idols. He's he is the one doing that. He has a personal vested interest in not liking this this particular passage of the Bible. And this whole like string of three things that he shows is trying to prove his point. He's not trying to prove the aliens or, you know, this or that. He's just trying to find a place to insert a different areas in the bible where god is vengeful because he wants to show that uh that god is a mean god and that really the gnostic the ones offering us the knowledge they are the ones that are trying to help us and we should do what they tell us to do and it's really he'll tell you what they tell you, they tell you to do he does that at the end here i'll share that with you in a second i will give him credit though those last two quotes from ezekiel were the first time in this entire presentation I guess we are 36 minutes into it where he actually quoted the Bible in the correct place 
those two passages in Ezekiel were actually quoted in the correct place. Although right after that is when he makes the, uh, he says on the presentation, Job 14, uh, when it's actually Job 20, verse 24. So, yeah, I guess he quickly lost whatever he deserved for getting two verses right. Let's move on because, again, there's a lot of stuff that he uh, says stupid. I want to try to get to some more uh, more deep topics that require a little bit more ex- explanation to debunk. But let me just first say, I mean, there's a few things like he give, attributes a quote to the Duke of Brunswick that is not to the Duke of Brunswick. He also attributes another quote to a guy named Sidney West multiple times in his presentation. No, no Sidney West exists in the Fabian Society, but there is a Sidney Webb, a Sidney spelled differently and web obviously not the same thing as wesp uh, west is is available although there's no evidence that he even said the quote so i mean there's two you know small things there misquotes that aren't biblical but let's go into uh some other things that i i want to talk about because he hits some macro things that need to be discussed um also the top archaeologists have not discovered jerusalem hmm. have not discovered any of the ancient places that are mentioned in the Bible. They have found little to no evidence of the so-called chosen holy people. Mm. Now, why is this important? It's because, look, how does it tie in with Michael Tassian's work? If this guy is going out of his way to tell everybody that, look, of course you're going to find no evidence because these people were Israelite pharaohs of Egypt who from the moment of their, expel, of their expulsion from Egypt have been you know, hiding their origins and, and working in the background mm. And, and perhaps even... Okay, we got to stop him there, because he said, well, you know, the top archaeologists never find anything to prove the Bible is, uh, you know, no archaeological evidence. Well, that's just really, really wrong. I mean, that's one of those really, really wrong things he said. And first of all, just saying little to no evidence kind of implies that there is evidence, which implies that it is true. If there is evidence, then it did happen, right? You know, there's little to no evidence that is true. Well, that means that there is evidence. But anyway, let's let's see what what he must have overlooked in his tireless research. This the discovery of the Hittites. The Hittites played a prominent role in Old Testament history. They interacted with biblical figures as early as Abraham, as late as Solomon. They are mentioned in Genesis 15:20 as the people who inhabited the land of Canaan. First Kings 10:29 records that they had purchased chariots, horses from Solomon. The most prominent Hittite is Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. The Hittites were a powerful force in the Middle East from 1750 until 1200 BC. Prior to the late 19th century, nothing was known of the Hittites outside of the Bible, and many critics allege that they were the invention of the biblical authors. In 1876, dramatic discovery changed that perception. British scholar named a whatever, you know, okay, so yeah, they found that out. Uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah, this, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has long been viewed as a legend. Critics assume that it was created uh, to communicate moral principles. However, throughout the Bible, the story is treated as a historical event. The Old Testament prophets refer to the destruction of Sodom on several occasions, Deuteronomy 29, 23, Isaiah 13, 19, Jeremiah 49, 18. And uh, these cities, cities play a key role in the teaching uh, of Jesus and the apostle Matthew 10:15, 2. Uh, Peter 2.6 and Jude 1.7 has what has archaeology found to establish the existence of these claims. Archaeologists have searched the Dead Sea region for many years in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they found Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's like, you know, secularly accepted. The walls of Jericho, there's your, you know, I mean, there's your Jerusalem there, biblical Jerusalem. Uh, according to the Bible, the conquest of Jericho occurred approximately 1440 B.C., 
The, mir- the miraculous nature of the conquest has caused some ad- uh, some scholars to dismiss the story as folklore. Does archaeology support the biblical account? Over the past century, four prominent archaeologists, that's t- is Michael Desarian's top archaeologist, right, uh, have excavated the site. Carl Watzinger from 1907 to 1909, John Garstag from 19- in the 1930s, Kathleen Kenyon from 1952 to 1958, and currently Brian Wood. The result of their work has been remarkable. First, they discovered that Jericho had an impressive system of fortifications surrounding the city and was retaining a wall 15 feet high. At its top was an 8-foot brick wall that strengthened from behind it there. You know, okay, so the walls of Jericho. Oh, that's nice. Uh, the house of David, one of the most beloved characters in the Bible is King David. Scripture says that now this should, you know, you know, count as archaeological evidence. One of the most beloved characters of the Bible is King David. Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. He revived, uh, re- re- revered the greatest, his revered is the greatest of all Israelite kings in the Messianic Covenant is, covenant is established through his lineage despite his key role in israel's history until recently no evidence outside the bible attested to his existence for this reason critics question the existence of king david in the summer of 1993 an archaeologist made what was now been labeled as a phenomenal and stunning discovery uh dr avram Bering burim burin and his team were excavating a site labeled tel dan Located in northern Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon, evidence indicates that this site is Old Testament land of Dan, blah, blah, blah. You can read all this is at probe.org slash content slash view slash 31 slash 77. Uh, and it's got all the references there and everything. And, uh, you know, and here's a recent one. Tiny Tablet proves uh, provides proof for Old Testament. This is uh, the... Th- 13th month of, what is this, June June 13th of 2007, okay, so this is pretty recent stuff. The sound, the sound of unbridled joy seldom breaks from the quiet of the British Museum's great Archaeid room, where it holds a collection of 13,000 Assyrian cuneiform tablets dating back 5,000 years, but Michael Jurisa, a visiting professor from Vienna, let out such a cry last Thursday as he made what has been called the most important find in biblical archaeology for the last 100 years, and discovered a discovery that supports the view that historical books of the Old Testament are based on fact. Basically, this is referring to one of uh, the Babylonian... I'll read it. Searching for Babylonian financial accounts among the tablets, Professor Jusa suddenly came across a name he half-remembered, Nabu Sharusa Ukin, described there in, in hand at the... in a hand 2,500-year-old 2500 as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon. Uh, Professor Yusra, the Assyriologist, checked the Old Testament, and there in chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah, he found, spelled differently, the same name, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, according to Jeremiah, was Nebuchadnezzar II's chief officer, and with him at the siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians overran the city. Well, that's pretty amazing, huh? That's, that, that just makes what Michael Tazarian say, and we should hear what he says again, I think. The top archaeologists have not discovered Jerusalem, hmm. have not discovered any of the ancient places that are mentioned in the Bible. Okay, this is just too easy. Let's move on because there's some serious things that he makes claim to. I think uh, one of them being that Moses is Akhenaten and that the cult of Aten, which he speaks of over and over and over, pretty much the centerpiece of his work, it seems like, is that the um, Jewish religion in, in, in whole is created by uh, Aten worship, that is, Akhenaten, and that Moses was, in fact, Akhenaten, and um, that, uh, and this is a really important thing to hit, which we'll do in a second, it's just going to take a while, so I want to try to hit a few more things before I go there. As part of our camouflage, 
they have created a, a book that has been edited, I don't know how many hundreds of times, yeah. especially by people like Francis Bacon and, yeah. and so many other you know, major Illuminati figures. Yeah. Even today, it's been subtly reinterpreted and not so subtly reinterpreted. Mm. But okay, this is kind of just patently false. i gotta, I got to try to explain this uh, the best way I can here, that, that there is no evidence of it being interpreted and kind of just sort of interpreted and reinterpreted and all this stuff. I know that that's what everybody says in the secular world. You probably hear that in college. Hell, you probably hear that in seminary now. That that, but but I'm telling you, it's it's not true. It's very provably not true. That what we do know is that uh, the manuscript, as far as its integrity from the earliest known manuscripts that we have, and then and it has we have a lot of. In fact, we have more copies of of the New Testament works than we do from any other ancient text in the world. As one guy said, if it was a secular document, where's that quote? Um, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. And the reason is, is because the the things that we have to measure, the authenticity of whether that was what the writer said and matching it up with it is by two things. One, we can tell how many texts of it we have. That way, if there's like a lot of different copies of it. We can compare all those different copies and see if they're all saying the same thing. And if they are, then we're like, well, we can be pretty reasonably sure that, that the author meant to say this. Because here we got you know, a lot of copies of this. So that's one way that you can tell that, that, that the message is, is, is getting through. And another way is to tell is, is the date between the time that it was supposedly written and the time that you have the earliest known manuscript of it. And that's also important because that lessens the time that it could have changed. And, you know, if you take into account the New Testament, this is what I'm talking about. So, and if you take into account stuff that we take as, you know, you've probably read Plato or you've probably read uh, Homer's Iliad. Have you ever read Homer's Iliad and, and thought, I wonder if uh, this is like what Homer said, you know, I wonder if this is what he, we just kind of take that for granted. Of course, it's what Homer meant to say, although here's the differences, um, like, for instance, the Bible has, when I was talking about how many copies were in circulation, it's 24,000 copies in circulation, 24,300 from the first few centuries. That's compared to Plato's Tetralogies that has seven, okay, seven copies that are, are compared to see if, if they match up. And no, they don't match up. In fact, there's a whole lot of discrepancies in Plato's and Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Homer's Iliad. You know, ever played the game, you know, phone or you know telephone or whatever i mean though like caesar's gaelic wars there's 10 manuscripts uh that we get you know if you go to barnes and noble and you buy caesar's gaelic wars there's no way that you can tell what that meant because of those 10 copies they were different and they had meaning different they meant and the same thing with homer's iliad that had the most 643 and uh, they still, again, were it was a serious game of telephone. People were changing it all the time, which makes it all the more interesting and amazing that of 24,300 copies of the New Testament, all those chances of changing in some way weren't changed. You know, the Illuminati didn't have its hands in every single one of those copies, you know, and Francis Bacon didn't do that. You know, it was well before Francis Bacon's time in the first century. Now, now, and here's the other amazing thing about that. Um and the the time that the we have again the time that it was written versus the earliest fragment fragment and the interval let's again take plato's tetralogies 380 bc was it was supposedly written 380 bc earliest fragment is ad 900 so that's 1280 years difference that we're taking those seven manuscripts to see and no wonder there's differences in what 
Plato may have or may not have said. The same thing with Caesar's Gaelic Wars, supposedly written in 60 BC. Earliest fragment is also in AD 900, and that's a that's an interval of 960 years. Okay, again, you know, for 10 manuscripts, and then Homer's Iliad is about as close as you can get, 850 BC uh, to 350 BC, a difference of 500 years. So it has a good chance. But then you look at the New Testament, AD 70 to 90 is, is when it was supposedly written, all all of them together. And the oldest fragment is the existence of John 18, dated AD 125. That's an interval of only 55 years. 55 years to spread a lot of uh, uh, of of you know stuff. So you know that that's one thing. And then we're talking about the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is even more amazing of of this. Like, and this was uh, you know so we had the Masoretic text, and that was like I think the Masoretic text were like was produced in 8900 by a group of Hebrew scribes known as the Masoretes. And uh, so anyway, that was like the oldest thing around. And that's how, that's a, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that the Jewish people had. So that was what they were going from. And they just thought they'd never find anything older. You know, just because, you know, anything being preserved that old is just crazy. That was old, you know. <laughs> but then uh, around that time in 1947, they had found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so here they found... You know uh, these these that were supposed invested uh, revealed what I heard, Jewish settlement which existed between uh, 125 BC and 6080. That means that the newly found man- manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a version of the Old Testament, had to have been produced around 100 BC, which is almost a thousand years prior to the Masoretic text. Okay, that's a thousand years difference between what they had and 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 what they and what they. Uh, Found, okay, so there could have been a lot of changes in a thousand years of all the copies of the Old Testament. But what they found, and so the big test was, are they going to be the same? Because if they were the same, that would mean that they had copied it right all these years, and it didn't change at all. I mean, it didn't. And okay, it changed like minor spelling things. And I'm serious. Look at the changes, the actual changes, and you will be astounded of what is changed. And that's why people like these snakes like Caesarean can say all oh, these interpretations and everything and you know well, they can technically get away with saying that it's changed but you know a, a spelling error like you know instead of you know saying the word uh, word it'll like leave off a D at the end just minor mistakes because they're men making mistakes in copies okay but that doesn't change the fact that the, the, the that it that it says the same thing you can have many copies to you know if you review all the copies you're like okay that's what it meant and so you know and the king james version everybody's like oh it's infallible and everything there's like 153 or something like that known errors in the and the of translation in the king james version i mean it's not infallible but it's also not been uh manipulated from the original text to control you either i mean it's uh you know people will have you believe it's been changed by everybody and that uh it's not i mean you you can go find out what those errors are there's 153 translation errors or whatever it is in the king james version and read what they are and it's it's translation errors from greek and hebrew to uh to english in the same way that if you know try to translate the same thing to another language, you're probably going to have errors in there. Uh, now, I'm not against the idea that, that at some point somebody snuck some bad stuff in there, but it's but it's going to be able to be pointed out by what we already know. I mean, like I think there's some verses added in, what is it, the end of Mark, 
that that are suspect and very suspect. And most good study, study Bibles will say this little section right here, these last few verses at the end of Mark, were not in the earliest uh, records of the Bible. And uh, you know, the, a lot of scholars debate whether it should be here. And oddly enough, those little passages have caused you know a lot of trouble with people drinking poison and handling snakes and the rest of it. Okay, let me play something to set up this next little bit, because this is also very important. Mm. That in the New Testament, Jesus is meant to be against. It was very important yeah. that uh, the new Christ, the new Jesus, which was a pagan idea, of course, had to look on paper that he was against the old Pharisaic tradition. Mm. But what I'm saying is it was the Pharisees who were creating this Jesus you know, yeah. uh, image. Yeah. But it was very important that they were never going to find an inroad into the Western culture. They were never going to be accepted as a civilized people unless they had a god, unless they had a tradition that was, uh, you know, was able to be accepted in Western lands. Yeah. Okay, I need to interject this obvious point. It might not seem obvious to some of you, but where in the world is he getting the idea that the Jewish people wanted to spread their religion? The Jewish religion is anything but evangelical. It is very exclusive. I mean, they don't want Gentiles in it. They are very specific. They have never wanted to. They never, ever, ever tried to spread this religion anywhere except keep out of everybody's business. I mean, that is preposterous to say what he just said, but let's move on. And, and the story, why I'm going into this, is because the story of how Paul doctored the old pagan Mithras, Ahura Mazda, the, the Horus. Yes. Here again, everybody in the conspiracy world is nodding their head in agreement. It's like, yes, that Christ thing, it sure has been done a lot of times with Horus and Mithras and everybody else. I've heard it so many times from Jordan Maxwell, who, by the way, you've heard that story from Jordan Maxwell, who is this guy's disciple. And other than that, you really haven't heard it anywhere except for Massey and a few other people, the only people that he quotes in his book. This is a very closed circuit that's claiming this Christ myth, myth thing. The whole idea was claimed about 100 years ago. It got debunked, thrown out of the water. On, uh, and I'm telling you this right now to anybody. I've written up stuff on this. Go on the Internet, uh, Zeitgeist debunked or, or anything like that. You could probably read one of the things in forum posts. I know it's out there. But basically, the idea of the mythical Christ, and Christ have anything to do with Horus, I know it sounds like it, because you've been taught that in school, and the Golden Bough, and the rest of it, that that, it, that Christ and Horus, and there are many, many gods born of a virgin, or whatever. But I can't say this, and stress this enough. It is not true. You go find me the 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 text that was written before Christ's birth, birth on Horus, or Krishna, or Mithras, or you can't uh, you know, go find the, the the god that was just like Jesus, Dionysus or whatever, you know. Uh, Horus is the one they used here along with uh, the others. Now go find that text and read it. Go to sacredtext.com and read Krishna. What, what, what does the story of Krishna exactly say? And then compare what you just read about what was written about Krishna before the birth of Christ. Make sure what you read was written before the birth of Christ so we can have some integrity here. And then compare that to what is claimed by Jordan Maxwell or Michael Tessarian or the movie Zeitgeist. Because, I mean, they make it sound like, oh, everybody in the world knows that, that Krishna was the same thing as Christ. And there was, oh, 80 such deities that had the exact same story as Christ. That is not true. And it's provably not true. And it's an old game. I'm telling you, I have some some royal rumbles with atheists. And, they, and the smart ones do not use that argument. 
it is not an argument that they want to use because you can make them look real stupid. And atheists do not want to look stupid. And if you are an atheist and you don't want to look stupid, then I would look into this for yourself to see if they're right about this. And that makes what he just said there incredibly stupid because they're saying that that Paul was actually he had studied up on Horus and so therefore had constructed this uh, this Jesus because he was also a Jew and was trying to spread Judaism and this new evangelical Judaism uh, because they came from again the cult of Aton which we're about to hit or the creme de la creme the the uh, the centerpiece of Tessarian's work here so and I'll go you one further if any of you out there can find let's say the movie Zeitgeist if you go in that section where it's comparing Jesus to all the other ancient gods, and it, and it has on the screen this list of all the things that Krishna did that you know sound just like what Jesus did. If you can go to the original text uh, where Krishna is mentioned doing these things, and I'm talking about the text before Jesus' birth, okay, where you can prove the text is, I mean, they're, they're out there, I can send you a link, go to sacredtext.com. And uh, you read through the account of Krishna's life or Horus's life or whatever, and if you can send me why the movie Zeitgeist made that claim, you know, just claim by claim, just do it on one God, I don't care what it is, Krishna, Horus, whatever. Just just send it point by point and show and link me to the place in the in the original text where it says what Zeitgeist said, then I'll give you a free shirt from conspiracyclothes.com, free of charge. I'll give you two free shirts from conspiracyclothes.com. Anybody that can do that because it's it's impossible. I'm just trying to illustrate that it's a flat-out lie that cannot be substantiated, but nobody seems to care. And, and I guess it's just because this old rehashed notion of the uh, the the multiple Christs came up with Zeitgeist because it was in a movie form, and people just don't... I mean, it, that stuff's been on paper by debunked authors for a long time, but nobody seemed to care until it was put in movie form, and a lot of kids that don't read books or anything else are like, oh, wow, that's true, you know, and it just got re, re- reborn. Let's move on. Who he uh, took the the Hebrew Messiah, and by the way, the Hebrew Messiah was nothing more than a, a military leader, a commander. It had no spiritual component whatsoever. Hmm. He was purely a reb- rebellious uh, leader who would lead the uh, Judeans out of captivity or bondage on a physical, political sense. Oh, I would ha- I would have to say that there are three hundred prophecies about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, and to say that is is. Uh, well, I mean, I can't really claim, I mean, I can't really get mad at this guy for not knowing the Bible. I mean, and probably 90% of his quotes from the Bible are, are wrong, like dead wrong in one way or another. And he's obviously manipulating it. So, I mean, I guess I can't get mad at him for not being a smart Bible scholar and not knowing the prophecies of Jesus. But to say that is really just kind of vicious. You know, you see what I'm saying? I mean, that is just, that's that's not, not just not knowing the Bible. That's kind of like his... I see that as him actually knowing the Bible and then and manipulating it to his end, which is, you know, kind of evil. It's later that, the, again, the term got hijacked and was, you know, made into something more than it actually was. Yeah. So we're talking about the wholesale hijacking of terms that if you actually get into their true historical meaning, you start to unravel an incredible story there. Yeah. But one of the most important things that we could probably deal with now is, is what you said in the introduction unbelievably, you know, because we're talking about the camouflage and we're talking about the tranquilization of people who who just believe whatever they're told by the very people who are Mm. the conspiratorial ones. (laughs) Fuck it all in. (laughs) And yet, in the uh, physical sciences, in archaeology, I mean, despite what the History Channel shows people, Mm. right? despite what some of the television malarkey is, Mm. the top 
archaeologists have. Oh yeah, okay, we've already done that. But but what 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 we need to hit is basically him saying, this is before we get into the Aton stuff. This is basically the crux of it. And this is the crux of everybody's stuff. Alan Watt, David Icke, uh, Michael Tesserian, Jordan Maxwell, all these snakes, Lawrence Gardner, uh, will all say that the uh, that Christianity was created by these people in order to control the masses by brainwashing. And they created it, and they made it. They made Jesus and wrote the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters of Paul and everything else in order to create this religion. Now here is the super big problem that they that everybody seems to overlook. It's logical and it makes tons of sense, but for some reason it doesn't fit. You know, nobody will ever say this. Uh, okay, first of all, the Catholic Church is the opposite of what was written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the letters of Paul. If indeed they are running the Vatican, then they then they have an opposite agenda, one that does include Madonna and one that does include pagan ritual and worship but not what was written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The people that followed what was written in those books were all killed. I mean, it, directly after this is when all the killings started. I mean, the first, the first, you know, secular writings are Romans writing back to Rome saying, how is it? How should we kill these uh, Christians? I mean, I know we're supposed to kill them, but should we kill them this way or that way? I mean, they're really, you know, they, they won't not say they're Christians. Like, they, they were all, like, you know, you read these writings of them saying, it's like, I gave them a choice to say if they were Christian or not, but they won't not say it. Like, I don't understand why these Christians won't just say that they're not a Christian and not get burned alive or not get hung at a stake or, you know, whatever. So the first account we know is that there is a group of people willing to die for this, okay? And they did die. In fact, they died so much that a Roman, uh, well, I can't remember the name of the Roman uh, guy, but he struck a coin basically concluding that they had wiped out all the Christians. They had thought they'd killed them all. Okay. Now, does that sound like like a group that is trying to spread their new religion that's controlling the people? Does that sound like the, a good way to start the control of a of a society? No, God, no, it's not even close. And and then they give you this idea, and they continue with this thing that says, well, the Bible was decided, the canon was decided in 350 at the Council of Nicaea, and here. I mean, I can prove to you, and, I, and I'll show you maybe, just please email me, chris at conspiracyclothes.com. I can send you some great links, uh, some study study about, you know, the canon was decided at least 200 years before 350 B.C. in the Council of Nicaea. What happened with the Council of Nicaea, if you want to say that the Illuminati took over the church as a control mechanism, that's fine. But they did it, they did it with a... Uh, uh, at that time, when the Roman Empire basically decided these people are getting too big, that it's out of control, we, if we can't beat them, let's join them and then turn it into a pagan religion. And that's why there's nothing Christian about the Vatican Church. That's why they worship Madonna. That's why there is no, uh, you know, you have to ask a priest to forgive you your sins, and then you got to go do works and say Hail, Hail Marys. There is nothing in the Bible that says anything like that. I know that some logical people have said before, you know, I can't help but notice that uh, none of that stuff the uh, church is saying is in the Bible. That's why the Catholic Church didn't want you to read the Bible. And then, and the people at the Council of Nicaea, so so this, this pagan idea says, okay, let's go ahead and, and make this uh, 
canonized, which just made it official. Everybody all agreed for 200 years what, what the Bible consisted of, what the scriptures consisted of. And, and, and the, everybody knew, but there was some heresies popping up, so people wanted to just go ahead and have it solidified. And those, those 300 or so bishops that they had at the Council of Nicaea were still having, had the scars from persecution. They had never stopped killing Christians all the way up until then. And then they never stopped killing them afterwards. Because that's when the Catholic Church was the one that started killing all the Christians. It never stopped. Then the Catholic Church would kill them because they wouldn't believe the crazy stuff that the Catholic Church was trying to shove down their throats. And they'd look at the Bible and say, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and like that, there's a book, Fox's Christian Martyrs, which is like, you know, about the 15th century or whatever. It was a guy, you know, all those people were killed by the Catholic Church. And, you know, they were burned at the stake and, and all kinds of horrible, hideous deaths because they wouldn't believe what the Catholic Church told them to believe, you know, the stuff that wasn't right, that, you know, they needed to worship, worship idols of Mary and, and the rest of it. And, they, and, you know, the few manuscripts that these early, you know, believers had, they'd check it with it and be like, you know, it doesn't say that, you know, this isn't right and you, you're not right. And they would be burned at the stake and they would give very simple ultimatums to just not be burned at the stake. And the records are always like, you know, they, they had to, they would rather be burned at the stake than to not say what was in, what was written there. And, I mean, the Bible has always been our defense against the Illuminati, as as we have it. It's always been our fact checker to see if they are who they are or they're not. I mean, it's our it's it's the way that we've been able to to, to beat them in the past, and that's why they've tried to do everything they can to. I mean, look, that that's the way our American Constitution was written through biblical principles. We kept the Illuminati out of America. Well, for a while, anyway, we did. I mean, if the, if we would have still been true to the constitution we would have forever that, that that we built a system to keep them out through using the same principles uh, originally that were in the bible it's our defense against them of course they're going to try to attack it the same way they're trying to attack the constitution we got to wake up to that to say that 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 group is you know that the christians were created to uh you know to be a control mechanism is the couldn't be any more of the opposite. Now, if you want to say the Vatican and the the Catholic Church and the Vatican mechanism, not necessarily all the Catholics or whatever, but but the Vatican mechanism was, then I, I could probably go along with that. But but you have to understand that the two are diametrically opposed, polar opposites of one another. They have two exactly opposing dogmas. The only difference is the Catholic Church constantly tells us that it is Christianity when when the real Christians, they all tried to kill off. I mean, that's a big problem there. And, and so a lot of us, uh, you know, that think that we have it all figured out will c constantly tell us about how, well, look at all the fruits that Christianity has brought us, all these wars and the, the uh, you know, all this, uh, the, the, the crusades and all that. It's like Christians had nothing to do with that. I mean, Jesus was the most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth he would he would not be allowed to join a baptist church or a, a methodist church nowadays it's not even real i mean you can get away with i mean a lot of these churches are infiltrated by you know satanic covens most of them uh you know i mean we have a lot of problems going on in these last days that are far beyond this and this whole coy and telpro operation of these snakes getting in here and telling us this crap and selling us these stories is because they're deathly afraid of real Christians. And, and they should be because they're the only people, and they know this, trust me, they know this. The Christians, real Christians, are the only ones that can stop this because the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the name and authority of Jesus Christ it, it is 
it can defeat them, and they know that. It's the only thing that can defeat them. So that's why you see all this focus on it, and that's why in the last days, and, and again, the primary tool for this is deception. And as you can see, or I hope that you're beginning to see, this is all deception. It's not real if you just looked at it. And the, and the problem is that you haven't had enough people saying, well, look at this. It's all completely stupid, and it's really easy to show you that it's stupid. You just need to sit and think for yourself. Just let's try to do that. Okay, okay, okay. I'm moving on, moving on. A very central theme to Michael uh, Tessarian's work is trying to make the cult of Aten, that is to say Akhenaten's uh, religion that he created, to make that the roots of Judeo-Christian. It's like been tried a lot of times, a lot of different ways, but this is Michael Tessarian's stab at it, basically. And... um, what he does differently is he doesn't just say that Akhenaten uh, influenced monotheism, but that Moses was, in fact, Akhenaten. And that uh, when it speaks of Jehovah, he's really talking about Akhenaten and the Levites being the priests of Akhenaten. So the, the laws being given by them are actually Akhenaten given the laws to his priests. There are a million problems with this, and uh, nobody seems to uh, be checking them as far as Michael Tessarian's crowd. Uh, one thing, this w- there's two basic ways to go about debunking this. One is, uh, d- did Akhenaten influence Jewish monotheism? Just period. Did Akhenaten, taken separately, influence Jewish monotheism at all? And what are the evidences for it? Because obviously Tessarian thinks there are a lot. Um, and the other one is, is Moses Akhenaten? The second one is, uh, you know, I have to leave that to Dr. Michael Heiser, who I respect. Uh, Dr. Heiser's uh, a lot of good work. Sitchinisrong.com is, is Dr. Michael Heiser. But, um, but yeah, he did a, a scientific paper on, on just that claim, Moses B. Akhenaten. And you can get that at his website, michaelheiser.com. And you can find uh, his website through Sitchinisrong.com, I believe. In the never-ending search for a natural explanation for the origins of the Judeo-Christian religion, skeptics have gone far afield looking for any person or idea that they can point to and claim that the Jews or Christians borrowed from. And we will look here at one of the most common claims from the mouths of the less sophisticated skeptics. One skeptic tried to pull this one on us, but the claim goes as far back as that expert in all matters biblical, Sigmund Freud, Uh, The claim monotheism, the belief in one God, is not a Hebrew original, but borrowed from the Pharaoh Akhenaten, which if you know anything about Michael Tessarian, he definitely did get this from Sigmund Freud, who he studied extensively and borrows much of his um, uh, philosophy from in in a million ways. Anyway, a caveat or two is in order before we begin. First, I'm inclined to accept the thesis of David Rawl that the Egyptian chronology is in need of revision and that Akhenaten was actually a contemporary of Saul and David. If that is true, then the argument is moot, and if anything, the borrowing occurred the other way around. However, however, for the sake of argument, we will assume that they that the presently accepted Egyptian chronology is correct and explore whether or not Akhenaten's monotheism may have been the source of Jewish monotheism. This also, of course, takes for granted the naturalistic assumption that Jewish monotheism was not instigated by a revelation, regardless of Akhenaten. But unless we wish to uh, adopt Mormon methods of argumentation here, we will not address the issue from that perspective. The Atenism-Judaism borrowing connection begins with the general naturalistic assumption 
that not only denies the possibility of external revelation, but from a rational perspective, supposes that monotheism was a late development that evolved from polyth polytheism, which had in turn evolved from polydemonism, and so, and so on back. However, as McCarter notes, many so-called primitive societies who were, are, at Neolithic level otherwise, were in fact monotheistic and showed no signs of ever having been anything else. Even from a naturalistic perspective, the borrowing development idea for monotheism has too many surds in the plotline to be taken seriously as an all-explaining thesis. Second, it is open to question, according to a recent researcher, whether monotheism is a proper word for Jewish belief anyway. And on that account, we refer to the reader here. And he links to uh, another side. What has Cairo to do with Jerusalem? We should begin our study by listing in full the similarities between Atenism, as we shall call Akhenaten's religion, and Jewish monotheism. They are, number one, both believed in one God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's it. Now, if this is all there is to the similarities, one whether whether critics who allege borrowing are really thinking clearly, speaking from strictly rational perspective, coming up with an idea that there is but one God rather than several or none who created and sustains the universe is little more than a natural variation upon a theme that we would expect people to hit upon often, even quite independently. This means, of course, that the critics don't need to allege borrowing from Akhenaten at all. The bottom of the barrel, uh, at the bottom of the barrel, the appeal to Atenism is just veiled insult added to attempted injury. Nevertheless, we need to know to explore the difference between Atenism and Judaism in order to make a rational case concerning the alleged borrowing. We begin by digging into the soil from which Atenism grew. Practically speaking, if any of the Egyptian pantheon were to be chosen as supreme, the sun god Ra, or some variation of him, like Aten, was the best candidate. Already in, the, already in Egypt at the time of Akhenaten, there had been a long-standing story of Ra as the first king to rule Egypt. Afterwards, wearied of the affairs of men, this Ra retire, retired to heavens, leaving his son, the pharaoh, to rule on earth in his stead. Not surprisingly, the time leading up to Akhenaten showed a progressive increase in the regard for the sun god and a view of Ra as the universal god. Not surprisingly, because the sun shines on everyone. The 18th dynasty, in the period prior to Akhenaten, saw a rise of heliopolitan cults and, the, and a solarization of the principal gods of Egypt. Thus, Grimmel avers that the change wrought by Akhenaten in this regard was not in itself revolutionary and was far from being revelatory religion that scholars have claimed it to be. Beyond this, we see the reign of Akhenaten a certain variance and express need to be different and hence a reason or a desire to establish a new religious tradition. Akhenaten was no conformist in other matters, so much so that Bre uh, Breasted referred to him as the first individual in history. This, quote, heretic king built a new capital in Middle Egypt and left the old administrative centers to the jackals. He tossed out cronies from the old political system and installed rank outsiders, quote, uh, he celebrated a jubilee much earlier in the reign than was normal and made a much bigger to-do of it than was typical. Tributes and gift were handed out at night, uh, handed out right and left, as Redford puts it mildly. Every day it seemed a holiday. He gave unusual prominence to his queen, Nefertiti, with seven years of 
within seven years of his reign, the integrated system of politics, economics, and cult that Egypt had known for 17 centuries had been drastically modified and turned upside down. Akhenaten was not one to keep the status quo going, and it is no surprise to see him breaking with tradition radically. If all this sounds good, it may need to be kept in mind that all of this may have not been the sign of what we would regard as a stable and sound mind. The downside is that Akhenaten appears to have been a poor administrator and perhaps just a touch of a loony. Under his rule, the Canaanite provinces got out of control. His admiration of the sun god was so great that he held ceremonies out in the blazing Egyptian heat, and one record contains a complaint that of, of an Assyrian ambassadorial party that they were made to stand out in the sun in diplomatic proceedings. Perhaps the most telling aspect of Akhenaten's reign, from our perspective, is the royal carvings depict him regularly lounging, completely limp in a chair or on a stool. To understand the problem somewhat, imagine our media have had only pictures of our president laying around the White House, slouched in the Oval Office in his pajamas. Atenism may have been less of a new religion and more of a way of an incompetent king gaining control over a rapidly deteriorating and dangerous situation. As David puts it, Akhenaten looks to be much of a political opportunist who introduced a new supreme deity in order to destroy the power of Amun-Ra and his priesthood. With this history established, we now set out to explore the differences between Atenism and Jewish monotheism, and here is where the road gets really rocky for the borrowing proponents. This is an important point. Um, evangelism and exclusivism. Uh, Redford says, Atenism was at its inception a typical Egyptian religion that never bothered no one. It would never have occurred to ancient Egyptians to postulate uh, the supernatural as a monad, uh, a unitary, intellectually superior emanation. Much less would it have occurred to him to suppose that his eternal salvation depended on the recognition of such a monad. One man might choose to worship this god or that, another might even hold for whatever reason that other gods did not exist, but this was not important for an ancient Egyptian. He could not have cared less. Again, the the recognition of gods in Egypt had nothing to do with you know, your morality or, or anything like that, your salvation or nothing. I mean, it was very far removed from any kind of conception of gods. It was new to say that it wasn't, obviously. Ancient Egypt, then, was something of a politically correct religious paradise. Akhenaten's monotheism, in line with his view, was neither evangelical nor exclusive. Aten became the, the god for the royalty, but he never became a god over the average Egyptian Joe. And, in fact, the degree of intensity at which the new program was pursued went downhill the farther one got from the royal presence. Akhenaten showed no interest in promulgating his faith, not until it became to his political advantage to do so, like when the priests gave him trouble. Then evangelism became rather convenient. Henotheism and monotheism. A relation to this, the possibility that Atenism did not apparently begin as monotheism, but as henotheism. Preference and superiority of one god over others. The earliest inscriptions of Akhenaten continued to refer to gods in the plural. This may be because Akhenaten himself had not clarified his beliefs yet, or it may be that the sculptors needed some time to get used to the idea uh, of using the singular. A key here is is an inscription which says that all gods other than Aten have failed and ceased to be effective. Does this mean that the other gods did once exist but have been subjugated by Aten? Or does it mean that they never really existed at all? The key verb is ambiguous, but the possible, but it is possible that Akhenaten's thought underwent a sort of mini-evolution of its own, and the note that it 
did not take thousands and note that it did not take thousands of years to happen uh laws and ceremonies this is important we we all know that many rules got handed down from the pentateuch which which atan uh what did atan do that was the same Actually, nothing. Atenism is devoid of ethical content. As Redford puts it, while Aten is the creator, albeit no associated cre- with, with no cre- associated creation story, he seems to show no compassion on his creatures. He provides them with life and sustenance, but in a rather perfunctory way. No texts tell us uh, he hears the cry of the poor man or succours the sick or forgives the sinner. Similar- similarly, we know all about his uh, cultic apparatus spelled out in the detail uh, in the Old Testament. Atenism offers no cultic acts other than the basic daily sacrifice. No cult images, no mythology, no concept of ever-changing manifestations of the divine world. Atenism has more in common with deism of the 18th century uh, West than it does with Jewish monotheism. Four, Pharaoh as mediator. Atenism has its common link with normal Egyptian religion, Akhenaten was regarded as the sole mediator for Aten on earth. The idea that the mediator is in itself not unusual. Moses is portrayed as serving something of that role, and the other religions conceived of their clergy as providing some level of intermediary device. But with Atenism, this relationship went so far as to make it so that the sun disk of Aten was simply the hypostatus of divine kingship, a pale reflection of Akhenaten's own on earth projected heavenwards. Akhenaten regarded himself as the ever-physical child of the sun disk and the sole high priest of Atenism. In future service of his own cult, temples, and other gods were, uh, of the other gods were chosen, and their priesthoods were abandoned, including the funerary priesthood, and as a result, the people literally, uh, people literally, from their religious point of view, had to depend on Akhenaten for their fate in the afterlife. The focus of the pharaoh was so great that Alan, the gods of Akhenaten's a religion is Akhenaten himself. And just as a human perspective, if this guy was so, uh, you know, Akhenaten had gone so far off the deep end that he really believed he was the supreme super god and everything really came through him, it's kind of, if you were to say that this guy later went into the desert with the uh, with the Jews and then became less of that, and then decided that his power was really, you know, he was a mediator, but in the sense of, like, totally submissive to God himself. I mean, when in history have you known a supreme dictator to relinquish his dictator, you know, his authority, and become something less? I mean, it doesn't really happen. So, you know, that that to me just doesn't, doesn't jive. Conclusion, Redford, who is regarded as a foremost authority on Akhenaten, summarizes the view of the mosaic Jewish monotheism being ripped off of Atenism in this way. These imaginary creatures are now fading away one by one as the historical reality gradually emerges. There is little or no evidence to support the notion of Akhenaten was the progenitor of full-blown monotheism that we find in the Bible. It had its own separate development. The monotheism of Akhenaten is so distant from Yahwehism that I would wonder why the two are compared. And Grimmel adds, It has been supposed that Atenism lies at the root of Christianity, when in fact it does nothing more than reflect the common ground of the Semitic civilizations. Finally, At- Alan, quoting Osman, observes that Atenism is the uh, the origin less of monotheistic 
world religions than of a natural philosophy. If this religion had succeeded, we should have expected it to produce a Thales rather than a Moses. We would expect not the god of Judaism, but the prime mover of Aristotle, or deism of Thomas Jefferson to come from the religion of Atenism. Skeptics and critics need to abandon the old saw that Moses borrowed monotheism from Akhenaten, for this point is not even rationally defensible. Then he lists the sources, and here I will also list this on my... Uh, website and I really encourage you to look at what Michael Heiser has to say about Moses being Akhenaten. That's some really good stuff too so you can go to his website. Okay, moving on. Well, John Dee was a great occultist, sacred geometrist and court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth and black magician and he worked for this woman who is called Elizabeth Tudor the daughter of Henry VIII. The original she must be who, she must, who must be obeyed. But her name in history is interesting I would say. Right? She was known as the Virgin Queen, and it's not because she couldn't get a man. This is about something else. They've you know, told us lies in history, but Virgin Queen, remember how the offspring of one of the sides would procreate? Think about it. And John Dee was a Rosicrucian, which is a secret society of Freemasons operating in the world. And that is why in all government buildings, as Jordan Maxwell and people have pointed out, you have the Rose Garden and the symbol of the rose. In every capital city of the world, you have the Rose Garden and the Bohemian Society and all these groups use the symbol of the rose. The Tudor Rose. So John Dee was the man around the time when they actually discovered that this there's a barrier up there because by that time they had telescopes and they maybe had some primitive flying ships. I mean we've heard about the flying ships for thousands of years, right? And the stuff I've told you about already. But they may have made some primitive crafts and tried to leave the planet and couldn't do it. So it was around about that time, the 13th, 14th, 15th century, that these technocrats realized, hey, we got a serious problem here. We've just spent almost 11,000 years trying to build up the hardware to get out of this planet. And now, no matter what we build, we can't get out because there's a blinking stargate up there. So they were in turmoil. And that is one of the reasons why those periods of history are so important. Not for the reasons they've been telling you in history school. They really were in a dilemma. They were imprisoned in this planet. Remember in the book of Revelation it says, And God will chain the beast to the pit for a thousand years. Right? Satan being chained to a pit. They realized they couldn't get out. So John Dee, to cut a long story short, said, well, we need another approach. We'll not stop with the development of the hardware. Keep that going. But we're going to need an altogether different approach. And he contacted his patrons, the Queen of England and her coterie, the, these original Illuminati types. And he said, what we need to do is go to a completely higher form of intelligence. Not extraterrestrial, but pan-dimensional. They may be able to help us with this. This is not the first time that such a portal has been opened on our Earth, and it wasn't the last. John Dee contacted some beings that C.S. Lewis refers to as the microbes. He says that under our level of perception, we have the microbes. A couple of hundred years ago, if you had talked to anybody about microbes, microbial life, bacteria, they'd have laughed at you. They'd have thought you were insane and probably locked you up if you described that. Then we invent the telescope, and now it's common knowledge, right? A whole universe of life forms, right? Beneath our perception of vision. Well, C.S. Lewis says there is another level above us, on the next level up almost, which is the same. You can't have a physical instrument so much to deal with it. The instrument of, of noticing that and knowing that is the human intuition. Or shall we say the human imagination. But John Dee, being an occultist and a, and a magician of great, very great power, opened a portal in England in the 14th century... The 15th century was opened in England. 
and he contacted beings of a higher grade of intelligence. This thing is a whole study in itself to do with occultism and what have you. And he contacted these microbes. And these microbes actually don't like being pestered by inferior types like him. <laughs> and we can't say they're good or they're bad, you know, that those terms ain't going to work with this. But long story short, as his mind is nearly frazzling with their interaction, they actually did tell him, oh yeah, what, what's your problem? And they said, oh yeah, we have, we have no problem with that. We can help you with that. We can, you know, fix that. And he goes, well then, let's do it. But the only trouble was that in order to do it, the information that they had to pour through his consciousness, he very quickly realized would take literally thousands of years to manifest in physical time. When the information started transmitting through his work, and his work was called Enochian magic, for those who happen to be into that, what we, you know when you see all those lovely pictures and quaint images of magicians in circles and all these symbols around and the, you know, the five-pointed pentagram and all that stuff, have you ever noticed how many of those symbols are actually planetary symbols for the start? I mean, we're talking occultism, yet they're mostly symbols of the planets. Because that also is a subject that's been put before us totally erroneously. I'll go into that in the, in, the, in the book. But what that really is all about, and why planetary symbols are used so often. So, when he started translating into his Enochian, and those quaint things you see in museums, all that information that was pouring down, it was too big for his consciousness, and Edward Kelly, and some other people that he worked with. So he had to get all his counterparts in Europe to get on the ball with this. So all these Illuminati families and black nobility intelligence people, you know, they were all working simultaneously at the same time. But then obviously history would notice this, wouldn't it? That all of these families start getting into what looks like the occult. So they sold that back to us as a period in history when suddenly there was a renaissance of esoteric knowledge in the world and everybody was into it. As if it's sort of something like a vogue thing, you know. And I'm not saying things like that don't happen. But all over the planet, all these rich families and rich people start getting into the occult. They've got to put it before us in this quaint way, just like they put swashbuckling movies of Errol Flynn in front of you, you know, to tell you something. The real story behind that is that these scholars were all working independently on this vast amount of knowledge which was pouring in day and night through the consciousness of the psychics of the world who worked for these royal families. Cornelius Agrippa and all of these other people were doing it, writing it down. And then later on it was discovered that it's so much information, what they're telling us, and it's also very hard to practicalize, and also they don't even know what it is, because it actually was a very advanced science, way, way beyond what this guy could translate. So they had to hand all of these dossiers out. And then later it was realized that having each of these intellectual geniuses working in their own little garrets up in the Bavarian hills is not good enough. We're going to have to, this knowledge is getting so much now, you have to bring it together into places where the scholars can come we call those places universities, universe cities, cities of the universe, or colleges where you call. Okay, I find a few things just really, really interesting about this. Number one, this is the first time uh, Michael Tessarian alludes to another group besides extraterrestrials, a apparently purely spiritual group that can be contacted through occult magic, okay? Through occult ritual, in this case, Enochian magic. Uh, this is the first time we hear of this from Michael Tessarin, that there is indeed a spirit realm and that they offer you knowledge uh, as well. And they, uh, he doesn't go into this right here, but basically it's what they wanted in exchange was blood. And that's what uh, why all the subsequent wars were created was because these, in exchange for the knowledge that they gave uh, John Dee and the, the, the people... Uh, who needed the knowledge of how to get out of this uh, earth through the Stargate or whatever, he, 
they gave, but what they wanted was blood, and so that's and they wanted it in a sacrificial manner, and that's why all the people that go fight wars, and that's when all the wars started. And he says, and you know, all the people were dressed up in the symbolism, and they had to die at certain places and certain. And I agree with that. You know, I agree that that's what's being happened. That all this is sacrificial, and that that makes a lot of sense. Here is what is interesting about this. Uh, okay, first of all, uh, Enochian magic. And what John D. did was, and what if you read the accounts of what he did, who he summoned with his Enochian magic is uh, is the same kind of entity that reminds people of the Gray. His description of him, the entity that gave them this quote information and wanted in exchange for ritual blood, was uh, looked very much like a Gray. Now the the person that uh, built on John Dee's work from these early mid Middle Ages there uh, was Alistair Crowley, who also does Enochian magic. That's where a lot of people that are researching a lot of this get that uh, Alistair Crowley uh, contacted what is now known as Lamb, L-A-M. If you do a Google image search for Lamb, you'll see that he also this is that's a picture I guess of Alistair that Alistair Crowley drew of the entity that was contacted through his Enochian magic. Now, what's also interesting about this is that, is that John Dee was a Rosicrucian. Apparently, Michael Desarian, uh is has links to Rosicrucian, if not is one. I mean, even on his bio, it says it. Um, so that's interesting that they're of the same potential order. But what's also interesting is Michael Tessarian's, um, you know, he, he claims Aleister Crowley as his influence, which isn't in itself damning, but when taken with the evidence, like what I'm saying is Alistair Crowley was the one doing this Enochian magic, trying to contact the same entity that John Dee was, who was a Rosicrucian, who Michael Tessarian was a Rosicrucian. Michael Tessarian just got done saying, for those of you doing Enochian magic, like, you know, those of you in the audience doing Enochian magic, like, condoning it, like, it's a part of, you know, the magic that we all do, it's all good, but then, you know, so he's, and Aleister Crowley very much, obviously, part of the Illuminati, in the sense that, you know, he's probably our president's grandfather and the rest of that, I mean, like, so... Where is the line he's supposed to be drawing here between him and the Illuminati? I mean, I don't see any, and, and it's like all this doublespeak throughout the whole thing that his magic and the Illuminati's magic uh, always seem to be the same thing. And he seems, and you know, he like tries to say it's different, but you know, here he is in every single one of these, uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations. He's got like, you know, the star symbol and everything else, and you know, he's got all kinds of satanic symbols everywhere. It's like, you know, I mean. <laughs> I don't understand how I'm supposed to distinguish, and I, you know, from your Satanism and theirs, you know. And he also claims Helen Blavatsky. I want to try. I'm trying to look for a quote right now that he gives of Helen Blavatsky of like her accolades towards Satan and how he just says it's so right on. Let me play that right here. Then Madame Helena Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society said something because she was on the ball with all of this. The appellation Satan in Hebrew and adversary belongs by right to the first and cruelest adversary of all other gods, Jehovah, not in the serpent which spoke only words of sympathy and wisdom. See that? What she's been saying in her books? See, I'm not making this up. If you're going to go down Michael Tessarian's road, you got to go down this part with him too. And that is that he is totally on board with the same lady that influenced Hitler to kill all those people. You know, the... She was the inspiration for all the occultism of the Nazis. She, you know, so here he is like totally in agreement, you know, that Satan, basically Satan rocks is what he just said. Also, I just noticed in getting that quote, he he says something else uh, that's easily disprovable right before that. I got to go ahead and pick that one up.
excruciating power. Because it was never forgotten that they were the beloved ones. You know in the Bible when it talks about Mary Magdalene being the harlot? That word harlot is a mistranslation of a, a word called heredulai. Heredulai, I think in Greek. And you know what heredulai means? Sacred or beloved one. Okay, another challenge. Anybody go find the definition that says heredulai means sacred or beloved one. Because it doesn't. I mean, the best definitions you can mostly get is temple slave. Um, and that's coming from the idea that, and you can find a little bit closer def definitions like uh, basically a heredulai was a prostitute of a temple that she would have sex under the guise of whatever goddess of that temple. Like if it was a temple to Athena, there would be a Herodulai there that would have sex with the patrons of the temple under the guise of Athena. And so the Herodulai was a temple, but in all cases or most cases it was a slave, and uh, that's why it has the connotation or definition, and most of the definitions I found is a temple slave, but some of them are a little, trying to give them a little credit, uh, you know, we would say like a sacred temple slave in the fact because it was done as a ritual. But uh, definitely not sacred or beloved one. You know, again, just look it up for yourself. Herod a lie. It's that, these are cover terms for something else. In fact, you have this prohibition in the Bible, thou shalt not lie with the beasts. That does not relate to actual bestiality, because what the hell, it, you know, what's that, right? But to Congress with the serpents. See how much sense it makes now? Right? The beast, this is a cover word. Thou shalt not lie with the beasts. Thou shalt not lie with the serpents. Okay, that is great because he just 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 says beast is serpents. Like it's a cover word. Everybody knows beast. When I say beast in the Bible, it means serpents because that totally fits with what I'm saying. Why would you have to say thou shalt not lie with the beasts? I mean, obviously he's talking about serpents. Let's just scratch out beasts and put serpents. There we go. That's what I meant. Let me play that again just to show you how ridiculous of a, of a sleight of hand that was with absolutely no evidence or suggesting of anything except for just presto changeo words, uh, compliments of, of Mike Tessarian. In fact, you have this prohibition in the Bible, thou shalt not lie with the beasts. That does not relate to actual bestiality because what the hell, it, you know, what's that, right? But to Congress with the serpents. See how much sense it makes now? The beast, this is a cover word. Thou shalt not lie with the beasts. Thou shalt not lie with the serpents. Again, I need to put a caveat here that in a sense, I agree with the whole concept of these fallen angels having genetically mingled their seed with men at one point. I mean, I think that that's what happened and that's what's being referred to in the pre-flood days. I think that's why God brought the flood. You know, and I think I have a parallel... You know, and this show has been trying to explore that whole area, what the genetic, uh, you know, including those days and also afterward. In these last days, the I believe that, you know, that again, we're being in a different manner, but these Nephilim bloodlines are again trying to mingle their seed with ours. So the difference is, is that one, the Bible actually lays that out pretty clearly. And that, and if this was true, if Tessarian was right, and the Bible was created by them, the Bible is explaining how to beat them. It's explaining their whole history about this Nephilim bloodline, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. I mean, if you discredit the Bible, then you're discrediting the way to beat these people. It And it's, and that's what they know, you know? So, and also, I disagree, obviously, with the fact that they, you know, of their origin and nature. 
And I certainly disagree with the fact that once you summon any spiritual uh, entities that you can be sure of their goodness or badness or anything. The fact that they are talking to you means that they are interested in you. And uh, that should be enough for you to think twice about that. You know, it's it's a very fine line between... But the but the part that's how they can get away with it. This is how him and Sitchin and the rest of it are getting away with this. And I'm telling you right now, this is I'm, I can't stress this enough that the coming world religion is going to have everything to do with this. The, you see how in his you know bit here he's he's changing God to an ancient superior technological race. That is the crux of everything because ultimately. In these last days, our new God will be uh, technology. And we're going to have to explain the fallacy of creation and how that happened. You know, Because the evolution argument, I know that a lot of people believe it because they've been taught in school. But you, you're basically, the atheists are going to have to switch to a new thing pretty soon. And that's going to be this idea that he's offering. Maybe not with all the bells and whistles. But basically, that ancient astronauts, if you will, uh, came down here and genetically modified the the apes or the you know early humanoids into being a higher advanced being. That is the religion of the future. This is the religion of the future, and uh, that's what makes us so dangerous and insidious. Is because the whole story of the Nephilim and this and this bloodline is, has everything to do with us preparing ourselves for these last days. I mean, we have to truly understand the nature of the Nephilim, what their current and uh, you know current situation and strategies are, which I think is easily done. I think, you know, not easily, but you know, we're getting closer on this show to figuring it out. And let me stop there. I think that's a little misleading, saying it's the Nephilim that's our enemies. The Nephilim go to rituals and worship something that they are very afraid of. And whatever it is that pro- that provokes them to do what they do at those rituals, that's our enemy. You know, not the Nephilim. They're just they're just part of a military system following orders. And the, that makes you think, well, what is at the top? And what is the person at the top's agenda? You know, could it be literally the devil? Does he have an, an agenda to literally create a one-world government and a one-world religion so he could embody the person that is chosen to be the leader of it so he could rule with an iron fist and force everybody to worship him, which was the entire goal in the first place because apparently being worshipped and forcing humanity to worship you is somehow the goal, a goal that neither you or I can understand. And that's that's it. That's what this is all about. Just, you know, my humble opinion. Okay, I want to play for you what Mr. Tessarian says at the end of this presentation uh, that he, um, you know, this is how you fight the system. This is, he's about to tell us how you defeat the New World Order. And keep in mind, he just got done telling everybody that these macrobes, these spiritual entities that were contacted by John D. and Aleister Crowley and everybody, uh, you know, that tried with the Enochian magic thing, that um, you know g- will give you knowledge, but in exchange for ritual blood, in which they require you know you to kill people for them and a ritual sacrifices and everything else. So and that's so he just got done telling you us all about these rituals and how they're required, and then he gives us the uh, the way out. So let's listen to him very carefully and find out how we can fight the new world order. When I describe these aliens coming into our planet, right into this planet, what does that sound like? When something from an alien source invades, right, an organism, what would that sound like to you? A viral infection. So people ask me, what are we going to do about it? 
wave placards, shoot bows and arrows at them? Not going to work. They have invaded us, and it is exactly like that. It is exactly the same paradigm. What does the holistic doctor tell you to do when you're invaded by a virus? What is the terms that they use? To strengthen the immune system. The earth is intelligent. The earth knows what to do. The earth is living. The earth doesn't want this pestilence on itself. We're running around trying to fight them, you know, in the normal way. It's not going to work. The earth is intelligent and living, and it knows what to get off of itself when it gets off it, and do it in the right way. But we have to strengthen its immune system, and we've lost the methodology of doing it. Each and every human being is a white blood corpuscle, a lymphite on the face of the earth. But if you're not doing your own rituals, if we've lost our traditional roots, and don't know about ritual, although some people gladly are getting back into that and deeply researching this, those rituals are not just, you know, because I want to go to God and I'm, you know, bored with my life. Every ritual that you do, no matter what it is, you must have in your mind that that ritual also involves the earth plane on which you live. Every ritual you do has no meaning unless you think that way. The dragon dances and the ghost dances of the Native American Indians, what do you think that was all about? This is going to give you some line. You know what that was all about? All the shamans of the world, when they do their rituals, they're doing that. Their work, harmonically, through dances, is to strengthen the immune system of the earth. They become that. They become emissaries of the earth, which is why they wear animal headdresses. You know, but they've been all murdered. That's why the indigenous people have been slaughtered wherever they've gone. Because the dark brotherhood, when the immune system of the earth starts to strengthen, they feel it bad, like a virus would, like a parasite. So that was why in the 17th century, exactly the same period I'm talking about, there was an all-out agenda that when you come across the indigenous people, you annihilate them. First of all, they're probably descendants of the sons of the serpent, who you hate anyway. And secondly, they're doing this kind of magical work. So get rid of them. So the Druids were destroyed. The Indians were destroyed. The Aboriginals were destroyed. Today it's happening as well. They can't have them around because they know. So few of them are left. So many of these rituals have been lost. You see, that we don't know what to do anymore. So each of us must research this to find out that even in your thoughts, your connection to the earth itself and your own private rituals must be tied in in some way, in a ritual way, to discover that. And I'll leave you with this. Because they have been telling us. In the movie Highlander, from the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries, living many secret lives. No one has ever known that we were among you until now. Okay, there you have it. His closing statement after all that stuff, the crux of everything that he wanted to say and tell everybody about the, the, the threat of the New World Order was rituals. We all need to do a lot of rituals. He must have said the word ritual 30 times in that closing statement, and he wants everybody to go learn how to do them and, and just do a lot of them, and we need to do them, and we need to think about the Earth's immune system when we do them, and I guess he's just wanting us to figure out how to do rituals properly, but not like the Illuminati do them. No, I mean, so how am I supposed to know what kind of rituals are right ones? Uh, you know, should I pick up a book of magic? What if I end up doing the Illuminati kind of rituals? Because, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any connection because you've double-spoke the whole time, n never giving any clarification of what the difference between the magic is. I mean, just use the same words both times. So how am I supposed to differentiate? Which good magic and bad magic? I don't know. You know, I mean, do you see the problem here that he is the system? This is the Illuminati. He is the problem. He is the New World Order. This is exactly what the New World Order wants you to think. I mean, to do rituals, to beat them, will not beat them. Do you understand that, that as you get into the occult, you give the devil a foothold? And that is because you've given him his free will. It's like a Ouija board is just a piece of you know, particle board. But by using it, you're, you're, 
you're activating your free will and saying, you know, I'm into this. I'm giving it over, even though it's expressly forbidden in, in, in the Bible. And the reason it's expressly forbidden is because God knew it gives the devil a foothold. And if you get a foothold eventually, and for some people it's different, but you can get demonic attachment. And if that happens, then you're being used in Satan's army, whether you like it or not, because you have somebody else inside of you, a, a demonic entity that's following orders. You know, in the same way that I have the Spirit of God inside of me, and so therefore do His will. But I am a willing servant of His. So most of you out there are willing servants of, of the dark side and don't even really want to be. But until we give that authority to God as our own free will, you know, we can't, we can't be, uh, you know, rid of it. You know, if we've already got a demonic attachment. You know, all this stuff is is dangerous and if his if his from what i know go through the archives of this show if you don't believe me and listen to some of the the interviews that i've done with like russ dizdar or, or russ dizdar is one of the main ones go find all the stuff on him and, and find out for yourself and see if you start to believe that and, and joe jordan who did all the alien abduction stuff I mean, go see if people that dabbled in the cult and then had, you know, sleep paralysis, night, you know, you know that kind of thing, and alien abductions and all the rest of the stuff that the demons just get a chance to. They're destructive little bastards. And as soon as they get a foothold, they just want to destroy you. And part of that is, you know, the sleep paralysis and everything else just terrifying you, destroying your life. And, and you... And the problem is that they will, most of the time, sometimes, depending on what kind of demons or what kind of pride structure you've built up for yourself, if you have any kind of extra skill, like maybe they've given you a little bit of foresight as far as you know being able to tell the future or do something, something like that, some kind of power, then you're going to never get rid of that demon because you're going you're gonna to cling to its... Uh, power like it's yours. It's a pride base, you know. I don't want to get rid of that, you know. But you don't even want, wouldn't even perceive it as that, as oh, I have a demonic attachment. You'd rather look at it as, you know, I have to look in this cult because I've been chosen. I'm a chosen one, and I'm very special. Yada yada yada. And I'm I'm saying here to tell you, you are special. But you know, nobody has. You, you if you have these powers, it's not because you're special. It's because you have a foothold and you have a demonic attachment. And it's all good to get rid of it. You just have to get the Holy Spirit of God, which is easy to get. You just have to give your free will to God and say you will be you know, his servant. And you want to do his will. And then you accept Jesus Christ. And you want him and his Holy Spirit to be inside of you and to guide you. And then renounce those demons in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. They cannot handle that. But you've got to get that Holy Spirit rolling first. So... Uh, yeah, okay, that's the end of this show, guys. Sorry for uh, ranting a little there towards the end. I hope uh, it helped anybody. If you want to contact me or you want to send me your hate mail, I'm sure I'm probably going to get a few this this uh, week. And it is chris at conspiracyclothes.com. That is C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclothes.com. You can go to the website at nowheretorun.podomatic.com. And you can write to me, snail mail, at uh, P.O. Box 1437, Gallatin, Tennessee, G-A-L-L-A-T-I-N, Tennessee, 37066. Okay, guys, thanks uh, for hanging around, and I'll see you next week. Uh, we are in the last days, so remember, power to the people, and all glory be to God. Later.